We're going to go back to the book of Nehemiah again tonight. Next Sunday is uh, the fourth Sunday of January, so we're going to go back to our ministry focus series next week, and we're going to pick up where we left off um, with this idea of um, personal Bible study. Uh, we talk, we've been talk, talking through the importance of that. Um, so next week for Ministry Focus Sunday, we'll go back to that, and then we'll have um, kind of an update on our Awana program um, on our, as we get the second semester started, and we'll spend time in prayer, and then, of course, we'll have our business meeting afterwards. So tonight, we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 4. And in Nehemiah, uh, we've seen this idea of the character of leadership. We've looked at the life of Nehemiah and, and seen how that's a challenge to our own hearts because God has called uh, any who, who know him as Savior to be leaders for him, to make a, a difference, to make an impact, to, make an in, to have an influence in the life of others for the cause of Christ and do the work of God with his help. And Nehemiah was one who was raised in captivity under the Persian Empire, uh, but God had burdened his heart to go back to his home country, his, the, the, birth, the place of his people, and to lead the, the building of the walls of Jerusalem. And so we, we saw the burden of, of his leadership, we saw the, the prayer that he engages in, uh, we, we saw the preparation of his life to be ready for those things. And then we saw last time, last week, uh, we saw the organization of his leadership. And we looked at, at chapter 3, which is just full of these, these names. And I'm so glad that we're done with that chapter. I don't have to read those again. Um, but you can go back and read them or listen to them uh, and see all the things that we, we saw in that chapter. And so tonight, what we see, what Nehemiah faces here in Nehemiah chapter 4 and the people is outside opposition to leadership. The English author G.K. Chesterton once noted, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because generally they are the same people. And here in Nehemiah chapter 4, when we open the, the pages here, these words certainly ring true. The hate and the vitriol of the neighbors of Jerusalem that they express here in these, these pages, these, these, this chapter, cannot be ignored. So chapter 3 records for us the tremendous buy-in of the people, the unity, and the achievements of the people who worked on Jerusalem's walls under Nehemiah. And if you read just chapter 3, you think, wow, it went really well, like nothing bad ever happened. Well, chapter 3 is the general, hey, here's all the people and the, a good chunk of the people that helped and, and some things we learned from that. But it's not the end of the story. You don't open chapter 4 and, oh, the walls are done. What you open in chapter 4 is, is you see some of the things that happen along the way. And so the enemies of Israel resurface here and again attempt to thwart this effort of God's people. And we learn through their opposition the nature of such things. The nature of such opposition we see even in our own lives today. And we see in Nehemiah the proper way we are to respond when we face opposition in our own lives in service to God. And what we see here is that God's work done in God's way will be met with outside opposition which can be repelled with God's wisdom and help. If you and I, and as a church, we do the work of God the way God calls us to do it, we will, or we, we, we will run into opposition. Why? Because we live in a sinful world. We live in a world that, that does not follow God. And so if you are going to hold in your life to the truth of God's word, which God calls us to do, you will face opposition. And tonight, of course, we're talking about opposition that comes from without. And, and so here, quite literally, you see opposition that comes into the life of these Jews as they are seeking to rebuild uh, the city of Jerusalem. And remember, what is, what is Jerusalem? It's the center of worship. It's the center of, of the life of, of Israel. Uh, it's, it represents more than just a city, um, what, what you find there in the very presence of God who dwells with his people. And so here, let's pick up in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and see this idea of intellectual warfare that begins. 
But it so happened, and there's that word I've talked about before, but showing contrast, right? Because you come out of chapter 3, and you're all excited, when we should be excited. But it so happened, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So here in verses 1 through 6, we're introduced to this idea of opposition, and it begins with what I call the intellectual assault. With, with, with the verbal uh, things that come. And, and what you see is, is, first of all, we want to talk about this assurance of opposition. In this chapter, we are introduced to the opposition to the work in Jerusalem right from the get-go. We, we meet this guy again named Sam Ballot. We met him back in, in chapter 2. And he returns uh, with his friend Tobiah to attack the people and the efforts of the wall. If the walls of Jerusalem return, the balance of power in that area is going to shift. Uh, remember, uh, the, the walls of Jerusalem have been torn down since, since 586 B.C. Uh, when, when Babylon completed the destruction of Jerusalem. And now you fast forward over 100 years later, uh, and that whole area has been just run by these, these other groups, these outside groups. They're the ones in charge. They're the ones enjoying the benefits. But if the walls return... That, that, that's gonna, the balance is going to shift again. And those who enjoyed such a great life would no longer have as great of an influence. Because here's the thing, if you live in a city with no walls, you kind of have to do what everybody else tells you to do, right? And Jerusalem, rebuilding its walls, would not be rebelling against the empire, um, but they would also have protection from some of these local groups. So Samballot did not like the prospect of having less influence in his life. And so, he launched his first wave of attacks, this intellectual warfare. And before we unpack those attacks, I want to make a few observations here about the nature of God's work. See, very, very simply put, Satan hates a good thing. And so, because of that, he will seek to oppose the work of God however he can. Satan is very real and active and, and, and hates what God does. Hate who, hates who God is. And he uses all those who are willing as participants in his plan to engage in these things. When we engage in the work of God and, and things, as we might say, begin to succeed or, or, or the work of God is going forward, one thing you can, be assure, you can be assured of is that opposition will follow. Um, James Montgomery Boyce, who was a pastor in Philadelphia, wrote this in his commentary on Nehemiah. Opposition is almost always caused by success and not failure. Sometimes when we see opposition, we, we think, what did I do wrong? But I think it's a, a great observation that he makes here, that, that there's opposition here. Why? Because they were doing something right. Because the work was going forward. And we're tempted to think that if we're doing God's work, sometimes we think, hey, if I'm doing what God called me to do, in the way that God has called me to do it, that nothing ever is going to go wrong. You ever thought that way? And so when something does go wrong, we think, what did I do wrong? But see, the prince of this world, being very real and very active, and having a lost world around us, full of sin, these hate the light. They hate the work of God. And in fact... God's work may engender a very harsh response from others. I mean, look at the description of Samballot in verse 1. But it so happened when Samballot heard we were rebuilding the wall that he was furious 
and very indignant. I mean, he's not just mildly annoyed that the Israelites are rebuilding the wall. He is very upset. He's taking it very personally. The Jews were making progress, and they were not faltering as he thought they were. One commentator said, anger will often be the world's response to God's work because it challenges worldviews and values. God calls the world into account because he is the creator of all men. He is the sovereign ruler of all things, and all men have to answer to God one day. And when that accountability is placed on the life of someone who does not know God, this is the response of anger. Why? Because we don't want to be accountable to somebody else, right? In, in our lost state, we, we don't want anyone to tell us what to do. Why do you think something like atheism is such a popular thing to run to? Because if there is no God, I don't have to answer to him. And doing God's work in God's way does result in opposition, And it's common, like we said, to think that when opposition comes, it means something is wrong, when in fact, that usually means something is right. And this is what I mean. As long as we are faithfully carrying on God's work in the way God says to do it, and in the spirit that God calls us to have, we can rest in him knowing we're right in him. That puts a lot of onus on us, right, to to search the scriptures. Think Think about, you know, our ministry as a church, in the way we might do things, or, or your personal life serving the Lord. You, if you're doing God's work the way God says in the right godly spirit, then you can, you can say before God, God, I, I believe I'm, I'm right here. I believe I'm, I'm doing that. And it, it's not just a matter of opinion, but fact-based in Scripture. Nehemiah wasn't working on his agenda or his project. This was God's project. This is what God had laid on his heart. And, and we know that, that, he was, that he had bathed this whole thing in prayer and he was so dependent on God, he is consumed with the glory of God. So he is doing God's work in God's way with God's spirit. The enemy is crafty. And we use all manner of opposition, but with God's help, we can withstand opposition and not just withstand opposition, we can grow through that. And so here, Sambalat and Tobiah launch verbal insults at the people. And I want you to notice as we go through this, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to help us kind of reframe what's said um, to help us understand the context. But notice in the attacks as we talk through it that there is a little nugget of truth that's mixed in with these attacks. Um, it's a very effective method uh, of the attack that's launched. And they try to get these attacks to cut deeper on the people. So first, what you see through the life of Sam Ballard, through the, the words, are the attacks on the people. It says, he mocked the Jews, and he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, and we'll stop right there for just a minute. So Sam Ballard is going to go after the people of Israel in particular. He is standing where? Before his army declaring these things, which, by the way, in my opinion, makes Sam Ballot a coward. Because he's like saying it with all his friends around. You know, so when he says something, yeah, that's right, you know. He's not out there necessarily screaming these at all the people. He's talking to his men, you know, trying to get them pumped up and on his side. And, and you know, we don't know if that, that they were nearby when they said these things. Um, but I, I believe if, even if they were not, uh, well, they made sure the people heard these things. I mean, that's part of the the, the plan here. Nehemiah, we have to remember, he's in Jerusalem under um, the blessing of the king. The king gave him letters to give him safe passage. The king gave him letters to to receive um, wood from the forest. And if you remember back in chapter chapter 1, that he was also sent with an escort from the king. And so, do you see how, I'm sorry, it's chapter 2. Um, do you see how that would cause an issue if Sanballat gets his army together and just launches a full-out assault on Jerusalem? Because Samaria, guess, what, guess who they are also under? They're also under the Persian Empire. So if they decide that they don't like what's going on and they just launch a full-out assault on Jerusalem, get, and, and you have Nehemiah who's there with the king's blessing, guess who's going to show up? 
the Persian army. And things are going to be over pretty quick. And so they don't do that. They don't go that route, right? I mean, you even noticed before, back in Ezra, that they didn't go that route then. They wrote this letter to the king that, that was very deceptive in what it said. And so that doesn't mean that there weren't other ways to harm the work. So Samballot begins to question, first of all, in his first attack, he says, um, what are these feeble Jews doing? He's attacking their, their status, their strength. The word feeble means to be withered and miserable. Basically, he says, could such a weak people hope to really reconstruct these walls of fortification? And here's the nugget of truth. The Jews really are a weak people. They have been taken into captivity. Their city had been overthrown. They had returned only to start and stall out on the work of the temple, and God had to send Haggai to help revitalize that work. They had begun to rebuild the wall before, only to find themselves under the ire of the king, and they couldn't stand up to that. And so Sanballat challenges their ability to take on such a project. I mean, would you agree that a a defeated people is a weak people? And, and, and would you agree that a people who can't get their act together before and can't stand up to the king before is a feeble people? They are. They could not possibly accomplish this. They had tried and failed. Now, let me reframe it for you. God delights in using the weak things of this world to confound the strong and the wise. But that doesn't deny the fact that these people were weak. The Jews were not strong and numerous. And so this, this characteristic of them fell under the verbal assault. He continues on. He says, will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? So are, are they really going to to be able to, to fortify themselves? Are they really going to, to get these, be able to get these walls up? And it's very really interesting when he uses this phrase, will they make sacrifices? In essence, what are they going to do? Are they going to pray the walls up? Or what are they going to do? Are they actually going to get it done so they can offer sacrifices of thanksgiving to God? Is that really going to happen? Surely not. Sam Ballot scoffs at the idea that God would actually help these people in their project. And again, let's examine the, 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 the issue here, the nugget of, of truth within the, the attack. Had God delivered his people into judgment? Yes. Nothing, nothing like that happens without God being the one who allows it to happen. He had promised that would happen. They had strayed from God, and he had delivered them into the hands of their enemies. They, they were, fell under their promised judgment for sin, and to Sanballat, that's an easy target. I mean, if your God delivers you into judgment, how can you possibly ever pray the walls up to a God like that? But see, let's reframe it. What had God promised to do if they returned to him? He promised to restore them. He promised to forgive them. And that's what he was doing. You see, judgment on sin does not eliminate your relationship with God. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, we were just talking about this this past week, this past weekend at camp. Some of you guys went with us. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews talks about how even those who, those who are Christians fall under the chastisement, the discipline of sin. Is, that, is God judging sin? Is he judging you or is he declaring you guilty of all sin, taking away salvation? No. Now, does sin bring consequences? Yes. But just because, as the writer says there in Hebrews, we experience that, that um, judgment on us for our sin or that consequence for our sin doesn't take away our relationship with God. God does it to bring us back into relationship with himself, just as he did with the Israelites. He judged them to help them see their sin. 
In the book of Judges, you see this over and over and over again. That people would sin, and God would bring judgment on their sin. And then what would they do? Inevitably, they would cry out to God. And what would God do? He would send a judge. He would send a Gideon. He would send a Samson. He would send a Deborah to rescue the people from their sin. And the people would rejoice, and they praise God. And then guess what they would do? They would go right back to worshiping idols, and God would, would judge them again for their sin. I mean, it's, just, it's a cycle. It does this. The whole book of Judges does this. But we see there that that judgment did not eliminate people's relationship with God. Now, if one does not know the Lord and enters eternity without a saving relationship with God, that judgment is going to end his relationship with God in that he will be separated from God for all of eternity. And of course, the people will have to work. So Samballot then seeks to remind the people, you know, he says, we're going to pray the walls up. Well, no, I mean, they're going, to, they're going to do the work of God. And then look what he says. Will they complete it in a day? So now he's going to remind the people, hey, this thing you've taken on is an enormous project. I mean, this isn't like a one-day home improvement project, which, by the way, they never really take one day, do they? They take about five days and three trips to Home Depot, right? But albeit, right, this is not a, a short-term project. This is a long-term, this is a longer ordeal. It was a, an intricate, involved rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. The going was, go, it was getting tough. Sam Ballot was making sure of that, that the going was going to get tough for them. And then he, he attacks even the materials they're using. He says, will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Would these stones really hold up and make a sufficient wall? Jerusalem had suffered a resounding defeat. It would not be out of the question to ask how much of that was really usable after all of that. But of course, this is why Nehemiah had come and surveyed the project. This is why Nehemiah had secured the, the timber from the king's forest. And, and more than one commentator has noted, and I think it's very important, that in, in Nehemiah chapter 2, there's a description there given of the walls. In Nehemiah 2, it says that the walls had been broken down, not burned. The gates had been burned with fire, but not the walls. Now, it's not to say that some of the stones hadn't been damaged. But you see, there's an over-exaggeration of what Sam Ballad is saying. And, and so each of these attacks contains at least some hint of truth. The people are weak. They had fallen under the judgment of God. The project is large. The, the, the materials there, some of them are damaged. And, and so... That is really the way, though, an attack like this is going to work. You know, even in your own life, as you serve the Lord, and, and you fall under the attacks from Satan and, and the enemy, if the enemy can insert th enough things that seem true, that attack can grow on your life. Have you experienced that in your life? You know? I mean, God, God can never use... Use you. You're a sinner. Is it true you're a sinner? Is it true that God could never use sinners? But Satan would want us to believe that. Well, you've, you've really let God down again. I can't believe you, you do that. Have you let God down? Yeah. But is he gracious and merciful? Yeah. But do you see the truth that comes in? The truth, so to speak? part, that the, the, the half-truth, the deception, we need to run to the Word of God and see the, the whole truth. The attacks that come may seem very personal in our lives. And what we must do, we, like I said, I tried to reframe these things as we go through them, and that's what we must do in our own lives when we face opposition. 
these attacks that, that the Israelites were under and what we may be under in our own lives, they may hit home and we may feel them in the deepest parts of our being. But the answer to all of these things, the answer to all the attacks that were launched here and the answer to attacks in our own lives, we can, sometimes we, we say this, yes, but God, because he's the answer. Yes, the people were weak, but God uses weak things. Yes, God had judged them, but God was drawing them back to himself. That's what he uses judgment for. Yes, the project is huge, but God had given them the strength to do it. Yes, things had been destroyed, but God would would give them what they needed to build. Because God is always the answer. And after these mockings, Tobiah, I always kind of just think of Tobiah as like the sidekick in the story. You know, he's like, he's like the, the guy who just kind of rides along and, and he's there to have fun and join in when he can. You know, maybe that's, that's silly, but that's how I always picture it. You know, he doesn't want to be left out. In verse 3, we see his attack on the work. Now, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. So he takes a shot at the work of the people. He claims that the work they so desperately attempt to finish will crack under barely any pressure at all. In fact, if a mere fox went up on the wall, it would come crashing to the ground. He claims that it would never stop an invading force or anyone who wanted to cause trouble. And that, of course, is a preposterous claim. In fact, Excavations of Nehemiah's wall reveal that this wall was around nine feet thick. I don't think a fox is going to be knocking that wall down anytime soon. But, but here's the thing. The enemy doesn't care about truth. The enemy doesn't care if what they say, what it, what they say is, is really how it is. Exaggeration is the name of the game when it comes to intellectual assault such as this. And so the enemy has launched its first salvo at the work In the initial meeting in Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah made it very clear to Sambalat and his cronies that they were not welcome in Jerusalem. They are not part of God's people. They want nothing to do with God's work. They only seek to oppose the work of God. So you're not welcome here. And now, they have come again to further their agenda of opposition. And when they return, Nehemiah must respond as the leader. And we see a response That should not surprise us. Nehemiah, with no fanfare or introduction, Nehemiah's answer is to pray. Starting in verse 4, hear, O our God. He prays to God in response to these attacks. You know, if we were faced with a situation like Nehemiah, how many of us could say this would be our first instinct? Because right now it's just verbal, right? You know, I think it'd be very easy to just, for Nehemiah or anybody in this situation, just to retaliate. You know, that's how they want to play it. We're going to play it the same way. I mean, Nehemiah knows the Lord is with him. He knows he is one of God's people doing God's work. So could Nehemiah truthfully launch a verbal assault of his own that says, hey, we're here doing what's right, you're here doing what's wrong. You think you're so great, huh? Well, we're God's people, we're doing God's work, and I told you to stay away. Right? Do you understand? I mean, that's pretty reasonable, right? That's not what he does. And instead, he goes to the Lord. Nehemiah's primary weapon against opposition was his God. And if you read... If you caught it when we read verses 4 and 5, to put it mildly, this is a very strongly worded prayer. Did you catch that? Let's look at it again. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. For they have provoked you to anger Before the builders. Okay, we read that and we say, Ooh, that's not very loving. Right? 
That's, that's not a warm and cuddling God save our neighbor's prayer. He asked God to make them a plunder for another land. He actually says, do not blot out their sin. Refuse to cover their iniquity. And, and I don't know about you, but when we read things like this, these are often called imprecatory prayers, prayers of judgment. You find them sometimes in the Psalms. We read that and we kind of take a step back because we're not really taught to pray like that. I mean, I don't know how many of you have, have ever read a little book like How to Pray Imprecatory Prayers on Your Enemies, right? Or heard a sermon series. I mean, you just don't, you don't hear that. But I'm here to tell you, this prayer is not a sinful prayer. And let's look why. First, because Nehemiah's motivation is not his cause, but God's. Nehemiah is praying that God would judge those who are opposed to him. In everything that Nehemiah has done, Nehemiah has held up God's cause above everything else. He has sought God's work in God's timing with God's help. And he has depended on God from day one. So when it comes to responding to opposition, his attitude is no different. Jerusalem is God's city. The center of worship, the center of the worship of God is located in Jerusalem at the temple. God's glory dwells within those walls. So to oppose this rebuilding work is not an affront to Nehemiah. It is a declaration of war on God. And so, Nehemiah prays, what does he pray for? That God would vindicate his work. That God would vindicate, and by his, I mean God's work. Nehemiah is not asking for anything unscriptural. What is Nehemiah asking God to do? He's asking God to judge sin. That is not unbiblical to ask God to judge sin. Because what does God's word tell us that God is going to do to sin? He's going to what? He's going to judge it. What do we see over and over again in the scriptures? What does God do to sin? He, he judges sin. These men have mocked the people and the work of God. I want us to remember back to Genesis 12 and verse 3, what God promised to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What you see here is the posture that these men took towards God's people put them at odds with God. Nehemiah was zealous for God's work and God's name. And so Nehemiah places this in the hands of God. So first of all, it comes from Nehemiah's motivation. He is zealous for the work of God. He wants God to judge sin because that's what God does. Secondly, I think it's important to note what Nehemiah does not do. Nehemiah does not ask God for permission to execute vengeance. He doesn't say, God, will you judge them and will you let me lop their heads off? That's a personal agenda, right? He asks God to be the judge. It's okay for us to ask God to judge sin while we, as God, as God does, still love the sinner. There have been those who over the years have committed terrible, awful, horrible things. Crimes that that put them behind bars for life. Crimes that put them on death row. And every once in a while you hear the story of someone who's done something like that and what happens? They come to the Lord. Does that mean that the punishment for the sin they committed immediately goes away? The temporal in this life? No. Now, their eternity's changed, right? If they've really come to know the Lord, their eternity has changed. But it doesn't mean that that all of a sudden, well, now you can go free, you can leave jail, you can... No. There's still judgment for sin that has to be carried out. There's still consequences. 
justice still will be served. Even though they came to know the Savior and receive his grace and mercy like anyone else can. Third, Nehemiah's further actions after his prayer also show us where his heart was focused. So verses 4 and 5, here's the prayer that he prayed, right? Then look what happens in verse 6. So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So after praying for God to judge sin and claim victory over his enemies, Nehemiah goes back to his tent, and he grabs his sword and his sling, and he goes out and he slays Sanballat and Tobiah, right? No, what does he do? They go back to work. Why? Because he's leaving God's work with God. And he's going to do what the work God has called him to do. God doesn't call us to be the judge and executioner of his judgment. That's God's work. Nehemiah doesn't spend time devising a plan to overthrow the enemy. He doesn't nurse feelings of hurt and anger and bitterness, but leaves the matter in God's hands because he's got a job to do. God calls us not to execute judgment, but to obey him. What was Nehemiah's mission? Rebuild the wall. So that's what he did. Prayer and doing God's work, or doing work for God, are not mutually exclusive. They work together. We see that over and over again in the book of Nehemiah. Sometimes we think, well, I just got to do the work. I just got to do it. It'll be okay. Well, I'll work it out. Or sometimes we think, why well, don't you do anything? I just need to pray about it. We have to take both. We have to pray and depend on God while we do the work God has called us to do. This is what Nehemiah does. He engages where God has set him to lead. God, but he leaves God's business with God. It is God's business to judge sin, and it is God's business to deal with these enemies. It was Nehemiah's business to lead the rebuilding project. And he did that with his whole heart. And the people rallied behind his leadership, and because of their diligence, we see that they have now completed half the wall. But this is not the end of the opposition. The enemy, seeing that work continue, is now going to escalate the situation. And so what we see in verses 7 through 14 is we see the imminent threat. Look there. Now it happened when Samballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God. And because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. Then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing. And there is so much rubbish, we are not able to build the wall. And our adversaries said, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came and told us ten times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Therefore I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses." So you see the forces that are gathering against Nehemiah and the people. They look out, and they don't see what they hoped or expected to see. They expected to see a people faltering in the work. They expected to see people discouraged and quitting. But no, they continue to build. Nehemiah's trust in God seems to be mirrored in in the people there. And so... We see then the might that begins to assemble to plot and attack. You have the the groups that are listed here. Samaria was from the north. Ammon is from the east. The Arabs are from the south. And Ashdod is from the west. So quite literally, Jerusalem is surrounded by enemies. 
And these enemies make plans to physically disrupt the rebuilding of the walls. Again, these groups would be unlikely to launch an outright attack in full confidence because doing so could bring down the might of the Persian army. But what's not out of the question is what we might call guerrilla warfare. Finding ways to hamper the process and derail it just enough is all they need. They don't need to kill everybody. They just need to get rid of a few people, and that will discourage everybody else to quit. And again, I think it's interesting how incredibly public and well-known these plans become. I think we, learn, we see later on that it seemed like they didn't mean for all of this to get out, but it, but it had, because God is the one who's overseeing these things. But again, some of this getting out is possibly a tactic of their warfare. And yet again, in verse 9, we see that when, they, when they're faced with this, the people in Nehemiah do what? They pray. They cry out to God. And then what do they do? They act. Nehemiah makes a wise decision to set up a watch for the enemy. And see, again, here's the balance. Now you have a threat of physical violence. So you pray and you depend on God, but you also have to keep a lookout. I thought um, one of the commentaries referenced this verse, and I thought it was an excellent verse that goes along with this, this passage. Psalm 127, 3. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. But you know what? The watchman still has to stay awake. You trust the Lord, you trust God, and his protection, and his might, but you do your part. And so the pressure is mounting on the city. And the, angri- the, the enemy is growing angrier. And the people are growing weary under the threats. And this round of threats begins to have the intended and hoped effect. We see the failing strength of the people. Verse 10, then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing. And there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. The wall is half built, and the people are beginning to run into issues in the rebuilding process, which isn't unexpected. I mean, I think from the beginning, they probably had issues, right? I mean, there's a lot of, of, of rubble. There's a lot of, of junk that's laying around, the debris that's piled up, and the strength of the people is giving out. This physical problem at the wall is more than just, though, a problem with rubble. It's more than just a problem with debris. It's exacerbated by the threat of violence from without. And the people repeat the threats that they have heard from the enemy and they postulate horrible endings and outcomes. What happens is when the heart is discouraged, fear reigns supreme. Have you ever been discouraged in work for the Lord and found fear settling in in your heart? Those who lived outside Jerusalem, that's what we find in verse 12. Those who lived outside Jerusalem were repeating what they saw and what they heard out there near the enemies. The might of the opposing force and the plan to finish the job was being repeated in their ears day in and day out. And really what's happening is the strength of the people to do the work and to be ready is just being sapped right out of them. They are physically and psychologically exhausted. And just as they've done so many times before, they're ready to give up. I mean, here's the opposition. It continues to mount, and this is the end of it all. And as the tensions mount... Nehemiah has a real problem on his hands. I, I really think that Nehemiah isn't that concerned that the enemy's going to launch this all-out assault. Because again, they have, they have the, the Persian Empire behind them. But see, other people around him are pretty concerned about that. And so as the leader, he's got to do something. He has to answer the fears of the people. He must recognize the validity of the possibility of an attack. And help the people refocus on the task at hand. And what is the task at hand? Working for the glory of God. And so we see his response. What his response does is it furthers the morale of the people. 
he begins to, re- to organize a resistance force. And we see that they're organized by families. Throughout her history, Israel has always been organized by families. And here is no different. He strategically places men in vulnerable positions to watch for the enemy. That's what it means by the lower parts of the wall. And then he reorganizes families to be together so they can stand and fight for their own. And look what they have. I mean, it tells us that they have swords and spears and bows. I mean, they have everything that could be expected to fight for their homes and for the glory of God. And then Nehemiah rallies the people in verse 14 and encourages them to fight. First and foremost, he says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. And by the way, this is like a really great, you know, rah-rah, get people going speech here, right? But it, we can't lose the fact the focus is on God. He is the most important one. He oversees all things. All victory comes from God alone. Nehemiah doesn't say, hey, hey, look how we've organized the people. They'll protect us. Nehemiah doesn't say, hey, hey, look, I'm such a great leader. I've put things together. You can trust me. What's he say? Remember the Lord. He's great and awesome. And the idea there is is, is how mighty and powerful he is. How amazing he is. And then he rouses them to fight for their families and their homes. I mean, it's a very moving scene. It's one that stirs within our own hearts even emotions of, of bravery. And again, Nehemiah takes practical action for the work of the Lord. Dependence on God warrants personal action for him. When you depend on the Lord, that's going to warrant that you do something with it. God gave them the means to defend themselves, and they were prepared to do so. And with this new setup, the people return to the task at hand with renewed vigor and renewed processes. In verse, verses 15 through 23, we see the informed rebuilding that takes place. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. So it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction, while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and wore armor. And the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built, and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored in the work, and half the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. At the same time, I also said to the people, let each man and his servant stay, the night, stay at night in Jerusalem, that, we may, that, that they may be our guard by night and a working party by day. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off our clothes, except that everyone took them off for washing. So what you have here is you have, first of all, a restored trust. The word gets out that the people of Jerusalem are responding. And I have no doubt that these guys had spies. They, could, they knew what was going on. And though it seems that the enemy wanted at least some of these things to be heard, perhaps they didn't want the whole plan to get out. But it had. And God's work is on display. And Nehemiah once again gives God all the glory for what's been accomplished. He doesn't say that, that their, their great schemes had repelled. No, no, God had frustrated their plans. He implemented the defense systems, and he rallied the people. I mean, can we, can we just confirm that, that Nehemiah is a wise guy? I don't mean like, oh, he's a wise guy, but he's a wise, he's a wise man, right? But, you know, Nehemiah just saw himself as a tool being used in the hand of God. And that's how we should see ourselves if God uses us in any 
incredible way or you know, any way that we used of him. We're just the tools that God uses. And as long as we stay faithful to God, he can continue to use us. The moment we get ahead of ourselves, we think that we're the, the reason, is the moment that we stop being effective for God. And Nehemiah, yeah, he implemented the defense systems. He rallied the people, but he was just there doing God's work. And so the trust of the people wasn't restored in Nehemiah, it was restored in God. They refocused on God's sovereign care for them, and they returned to the work. The enemy was real, the enemy was mighty, but God was, is greater than the enemy. But this did not change the fact that he needed to be ready. You still have four, four armies out there that want to do damage. God was continuing to give them great success, and so they continued to, to trust and stay prepared. So we see here the restructured systems in their life. The Jews undertook an approach of what many have referred to as the sword and trowel. They returned to the work ever ready to fight the enemy, if that enemy was to appear. And this is a sure sign of their trust in God. So, so just a few verses earlier, they were ready to quit altogether. They're ready to, to just throw in the towel, let's just turn it in. It's, it's, we, hey, we got halfway. That's pretty good. We never got that far before. But here they are, they're back working again. They work for the Lord, confident that in him they could meet any opposition. And this balance shows the true understanding of what it means to trust God and act on it. One commentator wrote this, Whereas we think our real work is our activity to which prayer is adjunct, our praying is our real work, and our activity is the index of how we have done it. What the commentator is saying and what we see here is that what we think a lot of times is, hey, I'm going to work for God, I'm going to do, what, I'm going to do this, and, and, and to kind of help uphold that, I'm going, to just, I'm, going to, I'm going to pray. But it's really the other way around. The real work, if we're working for God, the real work is praying. The real work is asking for God's will and God's strength and God's direction, and the measure, the index, the measure of how much we depend on God is what we do. Do we really trust God? Do we really depend on him? Do we really want to see him act? That works out in in what we do. The people trusted the Lord to give them the victory over the enemy, and thus they continued the original work ready to meet the foe in battle should the need arise. We read here that, that half of them worked at construction, while the other half held spears and shields and bows, and they wore armor. I think it's interesting, you have the burden bearers, in one hand they carry these loads, you know, of probably bricks or wood, and in the other hand they're holding their sword. We see that every builder had a sword strapped to his side. This truly is the meaning, as one author called it, trust and keep your powder dry. They trusted the Lord, but they were ready. That was part of their trust. They trusted that God would protect them. They trusted that God would give them the victory. And so if God's going to give them the victory, if they attack, well, they got to be ready to run them through, right? Nehemiah also devised a plan for notifying the people of an attack. Because the work of the wall is beginning to spread out. We're talking about a mile and a half to two and a half miles of wall circumference. And so, in order to make sure that everybody knew where to go, Nehemiah said, wherever you hear the trumpet... That's where you rally to the trumpet to repel the signaled attack. And so life continued on in this state of preparedness. We see that the people who were outside the the city, who lived outside the city, they were now staying within the city because returning to their homes would make them vulnerable to attack and they leave the city at less than full force. And they kept watch at night. There was also little time given to basic things such as changing clothes This is a sense of heightened awareness. And through it all, I want us to see something here about Nehemiah's character. Nehemiah, as the leader, doesn't give himself any special privileges or exempt himself. Notice what he says even about when the trumpet sounds. He he says, wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. And and notice um, 
there's one other spot where he says that the, that the trumpet was going to be with him. Uh, right there, up in verse 18. And the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Okay, so if the people are always supposed to go to the trumpet when it sounded, because that's where the trouble was, guess who else you're going to find there? Nehemiah. He wasn't looking down and you know, see somebody come in and go, hey, can you guys take care of that? No, he was like, come on, we're going. And when you get there, you're going to blow the trumpet and everybody's going to come and find us. He was involved in the work. And he reminded the people of their great God and stood with them through the time of trial. He says, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. God's work done God's way will be met with outside opposition, which can be repelled with God's wisdom and help. Outside opposition is sure to come to those who do God's work. The world is Satan's domain, and neither he nor the world want to see the kingdom of God move forward. And as we seek as a church, as individuals, to share the gospel with others today, we will meet opposition of our own to these things. Now, they won't always be a physical force threatening violence, but these threats are real all the same. And when faced with opposition... What is the primary thing we need to do? We need to stop and pray. If we're right with the Lord and we're doing his work, then we can continue on in confidence knowing that he is in control. Standing in God and on his word is the safest stance we can take. If when you and I are faced with opposition, all we stand on are merely our own thoughts or ideas, we'll lack solid ground. That's why, by the way, as a church, we seek to do things the way God lays out in his word. Those of you who went through our our membership class recently, you know that I, I constantly went back to that. We go back to the word of God for all of our faith and practice. Why? Because if we're just doing whatever we think we should do or because that's what a Baptist church is always supposed to do, we don't really have a leg to stand on. But if we do things the way God says to do them, that's where we're safe. The call to trust the Lord is also a call to action in our lives. We rest on him completely and we serve him wholeheartedly. Prayer and action go hand in hand. They must come, though, in the correct order and they must be present, both be present. We leave God's business to God and we ask for his wisdom to help us handle our business with his strength. God's work requires God's help. And we're faced with opposition. Discouragement lies close at hand. As we said before, fear is a powerful weapon of the enemy. Because fear attacks the remembrance of God, who is greater than all things. A vibrant, healthy prayer life is necessary for our continued action for the Lord amidst opposition. God is greater than all, and through, his opposition, through, through opposition, his work will grow. And that's an amazing thing here. These people were faced with, with an incredible opposition that attacked them, that threatened violence against them, but yet the work of God continued to grow. And in our own lives, we can see the same thing. If we trust God and work for him, through him, and in his strength. Father, thank you for the words that we have read tonight about Nehemiah. Thank you for the example in his life of one who trusted in you, who prayed so diligently, but never let that become an excuse not to act for you. Lord, would you help us in our own lives to find such a balance? to trust you with all that we have and at the same time give you everything we are. And Lord, we ask that that you would help us to do these things. God, if we're honest, we are weak people. We get discouraged very easily. We get distracted extremely easily. We're prone to be very apathetic towards the things of God. Would you convict us of these things would you draw us back to yourself? Would you help us to be, as a, as a church, would you help Beaverton Baptist Church to be defined as a place that seeks to do the work of God in the way of God, trusting in the power of God?
Lord, that has to start individually, that we as a body of Christ can uphold you to others around us. We ask that this week would be a week full of serving our God for your glory. In your name we pray, amen.